Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a very special guest, a returning guest. We talked back in 2019 about his book, Hitler's Secret Army, A Hidden History of Spies, Saboteurs, and Traitors in World War II. And that was October 25th, 2019. And he just published a book, published May 2021. The title of that book is The Spy Who Was Left Out in the Cold, The Secret History of Agent Golianewski. And it's a fascinating book. It a lot of information. I never heard this name of this person, Golanuski, who turns out to be a vitally important uh, turncoat from the Soviets to the United States. And it's a very detail-oriented book with lots of stuff. This is not Tim Tate's first book. He has also published, uh, let's see, in 2019, the title of that book is Body for Rent, the terrifying true story of two ordinary girls sold for sex against their will. There's also The Assassination of Robert F. Kennedy, Crime, Conspiracy, and Cover-Up. That was published in 2018. Hitler's Forgotten Children about the Lebensborn, published 2015. The Yorkshire Ripper, The Secret Murders, published 2015. Another one, Slave Girl Returned to Hell, published 2013. And then Roger, Roger Cook's Ten Greatest Con Men, 2008. And uh, the first book that I could see that he published is Children for the Devil, Ritual Abuse and Satanic Crime, published 1991. But Mr. Uh, Tate is not only an author, he's also done many, many uh, documentary films, over 80 or close to 80 documentary films for British and international networks, and has written for national and regional newspapers, and was also associated with uh, a documentary uh, band, documentary Conspiracy of Silence, about the Franklin scandal, and there's some harrowing uh, interviews still around the YouTube. It seems to be not so so much frequent uh, recently. I haven't found many of those, but uh, you might still be able to find those. But today we're going to talk about his recent publication, The Spy Who Was Left Out in the Cold. And Tim Tate's website is timtate.co.uk. So, Mr. Tate, are you there? I am indeed. Awesome. Well, thanks for agreeing to the interview. For people who may not have heard our last interview about Hitler's secret army or anything, can you talk about your lengthy CV and what brought you to write this and publish this book, The Spy Who Was Left Out on the Cold? Well, as you say, I'm an old documentary filmmaker. I spent 30 some years making films for all British networks and international networks, including Discovery and A&E amongst many others. And I also, I've published 18 nonfiction books now. Uh, starting back in 1988, and this latest one, The Spy Who Was Left Out in the Cold, is my most recent. The That's the, the UK title. It was published here in Britain in at the end of May. A US edition, which is coming out in December this year, has a slightly different title. It's the same book, exactly the same book. It's just got a different title for the American publishers. And that title is Agent Sniper. Sniper was Golianevsky's cover name. Gotcha. And so Sniper, really, that's how this whole story starts, is an unknown person reaches out to the West and says he has information. Can you kind of start how Golianewski reached out and uh, how that progressed with American intelligence? Sure. Well, in April 1958, so this is pretty much the heart, the deep frozen heart of the Cold War, an offer, a written offer, arrives at the U.S. Embassy in Switzerland from someone who says, look, I'm a 
uh, an intelligence officer behind the Iron Curtain, doesn't say exactly where, doesn't give his name, but he volunteers to provide information to the United States. He does so with one particular condition. He says, I will only deal with the FBI because that of all your agencies, of all your government departments and intelligence agencies, only the FBI has not been penetrated by my colleagues in communist bloc intelligence. And if you accept that, you, America, accept that, then I'll happily supply you with information. Right. And that's kind of, sorry to interrupt, but that was kind of what they were looking for. Intelligence is looking for an agent in place. So he was offering to be in place and send out information. Is that correct? Absolutely. At that point, the United States and its allies in the West were desperately short of good intelligence coming out of Soviet bloc countries. And an agent in place, and that's exactly what this offer was, this man was offering to be an agent in place, was the most valuable offer of all because it's an intelligence agent working for a foreign spy service who says, I will carry on working for them, but I will and I will secretly feed you information, their most secret information. That's, I mean, that's incredibly valuable. Right. So he sets this up, but the Western intelligence isn't entirely honest about his connection with the FBI, right? Absolutely dishonest. They Bear in mind, at this point, all they have is a letter, an anonymous letter, which is addressed to Hoover, J. Edgar Hoover, director of the FBI. It doesn't ever get to Hoover. It's intercepted by the CIA. And the CIA there for the next three years intercepts all the correspondence. It writes back to this mysterious man saying, yes, we'd love to deal with you, but it pretends all the while that it's the FBI. Right. So they're trying to ascertain the value of this in this person. They've, they've uh, kind of got this stuff. And so they kind of start this whole uh, secret drops, right? So he's starting to provide information. Yeah. I mean, this is the heart of the Cold War. You can't just telephone somebody or send somebody a letter from behind the Iron Curtain because it's simply not safe or physically possible. So the CIA sets up a series of dead drops, which are places where their mysterious benefactor could leave them documents and later microfilms. And that's what he does for the next 33 months, pretty much every month, long documents including copies of the most sensitive and valuable Soviet bloc intelligence material begin arriving in these dead drops and get ferried back to Washington, D.C. And how did they uh, assess this information as it was coming out of uh, the Soviet bloc? Well, initially, they were properly suspicious. You know, is this just too good to be true? But they came pretty much quickly to decide that the information was so good and so reliable that whoever this mysterious agent in place was, and all he would give them was his, his own self-chosen cover name, Sniper, 
whoever he whoever sniper was he was top grade he probably they thought worked for polish intelligence but he also clearly also worked with the soviet kgb and what he was delivering was just the best it was unprecedented unprecedented both in its scope and in the detail he was naming names of agents soviet bloc agents undercover all over europe and the united states right and you you're each you break down these chapters as each one of these names is exposed it's really remarkable about how many different how vast the spy network of the kgb was and how it had penetrated so many different societies yeah i mean it, it it's extraordinary when you look at just the, this is just his take alone. But in one sense, it's not that surprising. The, the Soviets had been at this. They'd been, they were old hands at the spying game. Indeed, one of the CIA documents I'd managed to get hold of has them at the time ruefully reflecting on how good the Soviets, the KGB and its successor, predecessors were and how poor American intelligence was. I mean, basically, American intelligence was not very good and right. was being beaten hands down by the communists at this point. Right, and you you mentioned, I think it was the Okhrana, so even the Imperial Russian secret police were skilled, so that tradition was much more ingrained in uh, Russia or Soviet Russia than in the U.S., which really didn't have much of a intelligence agency till after World War II. Yeah, I mean, the U.S. had begun its first efforts at a foreign intelligence service or services during World War II with the OSS and its um, similar units inside the military. But it wasn't until 47, 48 that the CIA is formed. And even then, there was... There is backstabbing, there's internecine rivalry between the various departments inside the U.S. executive. So the CIA began life hobbled by a lack of information and by disputes with its colleagues and partners in the State Department and in the Pentagon. Right. And so there's these rivalries that are going on. And how, when they got, they got this new information from this unknown spy at the time, can you talk about some of the things that he exposed, some of the people and individuals he exposed? Very rarely did he give the name. He didn't. He very rarely said in one of his reports, oh, this person here is, the, is, is spying for, for Moscow or for Warsaw, because it didn't work like that. Though some, on some occasions he did give the actual identity. But he said this, there is... Warsaw or Moscow has a a spy, a mole buried within the British Admiralty or within within the Swedish Air Force upper echelons who has access to NATO. And he gave enough details that the CIA uh, was able to farm this out to its associated agencies in the West, and they were able to identify these spies pretty quickly. And what they discovered, to their horror, was that these these spies had been at it for for years, sometimes in some cases decades, and had been feeding Moscow with some of the West's most devastating secrets. Yeah, it really is remarkable. Can you talk about the Portland spy ring? 
Sure, the Portland Spiring, which is kind of a long-forgotten thing in the UK, was a group of spies who were operating inside the Admiralty. That's kind of our Navy hierarchy here. And they'd been working in in that, feeding Moscow with really top-secret information about uh, anti-submarine um, equipment and technology and, and, and weapons. They'd been doing that since the mid-50s. By the time Sniper, Agent Sniper, provides the information which is going to lead to the downfall of this, this Soviet spy ring, it's 1960, 1959, 1960. So they'd been going for quite some time. What he gives them is enough information for the CIA and Britain's MI5 to identify the main spy, who's this low-level, low rather dull British plodder in the Navy's bureaucracy, but who's been working for the KGB for five years and feeding them secrets. Pulling at that thread, MI5, our counterintelligence service, discovers not merely that this man, Harry Houghton, has an associate, his girlfriend, a woman called Bunty G, but that they're being controlled by a mysterious and previously unknown man who appears to be Canadian. Turns out he wasn't Canadian. Turns out he's a Russian working under deep cover and false identities. That man who was ostensibly a Canadian called um, Gordon Lonsdale, was in fact a, a Soviet KGB officer, a long-term KGB officer, called Conan Melody. Not merely was he operating inside London with impunity, but he had two associates who were helping him send back all this material to Moscow. They appeared to be New Zealanders, Turned out they weren't. Turned out they were actually Americans on the run from the FBI for their part in the atom spy ring at the beginning of the 50s. So the, the one thread which Agent Sniper gives to the CIA and then goes to MI5 leads to the uncovering of a huge and vitally important Soviet bloc spy ring, the, the Portland Spies. Right, yeah, it's just incredible and they, uh, that these they were all in deep covers, supposedly British citizens, but uh, really remarkable. And that's just one side of it. It just shows, like, there, there's this Israeli plant or mole. There's a, a an additional mole in the like MI6, which uh, you know you already had what the Cambridge Five and Philby. I think Philby was exposed later, but uh, can you talk about George Blake and how that how he got exposed? Yeah, I mean, for for those of your listeners who don't know, MI5 in Britain is our domestic security service, sort of roughly equivalent to the FBI. MI6 is our foreign intelligence service. The secret intelligence service is its formal title, sort of roughly equivalent to the CIA. George Blake was a pretty senior... MI6 officer. He'd been turned by Moscow and became a KGB spy for them undercover inside MI6 in the early 1950s. And he fed back to Moscow 
some of the West's most important secrets, including, and this is the big one, I suppose, that some of your listeners will have heard of, the Berlin Tunnel. Now, the Berlin Tunnel was what US intelligence and British intelligence dug underneath Berlin to tap into Eastern Bloc telephone and cable traffic. It was um, a hugely expensive, incredibly secret operation to get at vital intelligence. As it turned out, Blake, who knew about it, betrayed that to Moscow from day one. So all the material which the West thought they'd got from the Berlin Tunnel was utterly valueless. Right, and that was kind of one of the elements or themes in the book is this idea of disinformation. So, or dis, I forgot the Russian term, but uh, so that's another kind of element of this kind of deep spying and uh, paranoia that's involved. So, Golanusi showed himself to U.S. intelligence and all of these other associated intelligence agencies as giving vital information. What happened next to Golanuski? At some point, it was likely that his time would run out, time as an agent in place would run out. And I mean, there's pretty much generally a, a limited timescale for this. But U.S. intelligence was, to put it mildly, inept. So that because of its inexactitude and because of its poor tradecraft, it managed to allow news of this extraordinary spy's existence to leak back to Moscow. So in 1960, Agent Sniper gets in touch with American intelligence and says, look, they're on my tail. They've discovered me. You've got Someone has leaked my existence back to my masters in Moscow and, and Warsaw. And you've got to be careful because from now on, because I'm on borrowed time, and I know what will happen if they do catch me, I'll be put up against a wall and I'll get a bullet in the head. He tries to play this out quite bravely and a little naively, I think, but he tries to play this out. He tries to keep it going. But by December 1960, it's absolutely apparent that the KGB and Polish intelligence are, are going to nick him. They're going to they're trap him, they're going to arrest him, and at that point, the best he can hope for is a bullet in the back of the head. So, in December 1960, in fact, on Christmas, Christmas Eve 1960, he goes on the run. He grabs a whole bunch of documents from his office in Warsaw, he grabs a whole bunch of cash, and he hightails it to East Berlin. And that's where he's planning in January 1961, if he can stay alive long enough, to defect to the US Embassy in West Berlin. Right, so he's done this very high pressure environment where he is stealing things, knowing that he could be summarily executed. And he has he has a one family, he has a mistress, so he's, I mean, you talk about him as a kind of a flawed character. And so he has made it to uh, Berlin. And the, what happens next? How does the, the uh, U.S. intelligence kind of handle him from there? 
Well, he spends the first few days, the first week or so in Berlin, pretty much walking the streets. He has to fulfill some last tasks for his masters in Polish intelligence just to keep his cover going. And he also has to get in touch with and meet his mistress, who's an East Berlin woman called Irmgard Kampf, and tell her, we're going to defect. And he also has to warn the Americans that he's coming. Now, the, there are huge risks in all of this, but he manages it. And so on January the 4th, 1961, this man, who the Americans only know as Agent Sniper, turns up by arrangement at the US consulate in West Berlin and walks in for the first time to what he believes is the safety of American territory. Right, so he believes that, but even his mistress didn't know his real name too, right? So he had he to kind of... He'd given Ermgard, his mistress, a series of false names. So at the time that they arrive at the consulate, not merely did American intelligence not know his real name, neither did his mistress, and she didn't know where they were going. That's just incredible. So, I mean, and then I think that he's in this incredibly high-pressure environment and maybe expecting much more from the Americans than they delivered. Would you agree with that? I think so. I mean, in f nothing is black and white in this story. Bear in mind that Golyanevsky himself is a deceptive character. He's a spy. Of course he's deceptive. But he found that he wasn't dealing with the FBI, as he'd been promised. He found he was dealing with the CIA. But at that point, it's too late to back out. He can't go back to Poland. If he does, he's going to get shot. So he has to trust the CIA. The agency he knows is penetrated by communist intelligence services. And at that point, he's placing all his hopes and trusts in the CIA and the US government. The US government promises him political asylum, and it gives it to him. It flies him and his mistress, Kampf, to the east coast of the US, puts them up in a safe house in McLean, Virginia, and begins debriefing them. And for the next two years, things go pretty well. I mean, you could look at that and you could say, well, the US government is delivering on its promises. For example, it, you know, it gives him a lot of money. It helps him get his own apartment, two apartments, in fact. He moves from one to the other. It promises him a contract of employment. And it sponsors his marriage to his mistress. Bear in mind he has no documents. He's he's working under a cover name that the CIA has given him. He's got no paperwork to allow him to marry. So the CIA steps in with the, uh, the state of Virginia and says, don't you worry about it. We'll vouch for this guy. So he gets married. He's in, it's in fact a bigamous marriage, but CIA, I guess, didn't know about that. At that point, you could say the CIA is is living up to its promises. In fact, it also sponsors a private bill in a private act 
in Congress to bypass immigration law to get Golianevsky the right to apply for U- U.S. citizenship. Right. And so in it's return, like an indi- yeah, it's an individual bill, H.R. 5507, just yeah. for him. So it shows his importance. Yeah. yeah, I mean, this is what the CIA used to do to get round the requirements of immigration law, which were quite strict when it came to people who'd been working for communist bloc intelligence services. Um, but it sponsors this bill, and it begins pushing it through Congress to get Congress to rubber stamp it and to give Golianevsky the right to apply for U.S. citizenship. And on the surface, all of that looks great. Equally, and in return, on the surface, what Golianevsky is giving the U.S. in return is gold dust. I mean, he gives them by its own assessments, and I got hold of the CIA's own documents on this. It gives He gives them the names and details of 1,693 Soviet bloc intelligence officers, workers, agents. He gives them 1,000 pages of secret documents, 750 frames of microfilm with more documents. This is an unprecedented take. No one, but no one, no spy before or since, has ever given the West anything approaching this volume and this quality of information. Yeah, and it is interesting how little he's known. I mean, you say that it was very hard to find records about him, except for what was released by Polish uh, historians or Polish archivists. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, when I started work on this, in fairness, I've known a little bit about the Golianevsky story for 50 years and have been trying to get documents out of the various governments for the last 15 or 20 years. It wasn't until 2016, 2017 that I began to get some results from that. And one of the questions I wanted to ask was, this was such an important spy. This was the best spy, really, the West ever had. Why Why is everyone so secretive about him? Why, why, do, why has he been erased so effectively from the, the history of the Cold War? And there was an answer and a story to that, which was not what I had expected. Yeah, I think you wrote he was airbrushed out of history, like, uh, like almost like something the Soviet Union would do. But it is remarkable that he's not, I mean, I don't never heard of this person, but for what he did and how much he provided, it didn't quite work out within the context of other uh, Soviet bloc spies who, uh, you know, went to the West. He, there was another guy, Galitsyn, who, for some reason or other, it seems like the American intelligence valued him more than Golanuski. Is that right? Yeah, this is <clears throat> Golitsyn, Anatoly Golitsyn, was essentially Golianevsky's nemesis in the West. Golitsyn is a mid-ranking KGB officer. He defects nine or ten months after Golianevsky. And unlike Golianevsky, when he defects, he brings with him a handful, literally a small handful of documents, 20, 23 documents, none of which have any real value. And he doesn't have 
any great information. It's not me saying that. That's the CIA who exfiltrated him to the West and ended up lionizing him. That's what they say in their internal reports, which I got hold of. Galitzin arrives, and he's a prima donna from day one. And he's demanding. And the big demand he makes of the CIA is, I am the only true defector. Everyone else who came before me, everyone else who comes after me, mm -mm, they're fakes. They were sent or are, will be sent to mislead you. And only I can be trusted and believed. Given how little intelligence he brought with him and provided, it's extraordinary that anyone bought this story. But the head of the CIA's counterintelligence staff, a very strange man called James Jesus Angleton, didn't just buy it, he swallowed this hook, line, and sinker. And from then onwards, Galitzin became the one and only true source. And anyone that Galitzin said was a fake was automatically going to be cast out, abandoned, or harassed. And Golyanevsky was one of the early casualties of that. All right, so he was diminished, Golyanevsky was diminished by internal stuff. And uh, Angleton made the extraordinary allowance for Golitsyn to actually look through some CIA files. It's really incredible how Golitsyn was much more savvy at kind of manipulating uh, American intelligence. Yeah, I mean, Galitzin was a con man. There's no, there are no two ways about this. It, that's and that's the best explanation. There is a another thesis, which is that Galitzin was actually dispatched by the KGB to mi deliberately mislead and lead Western intelligence down false paths. And whether it was deliberate or not, he most certainly did that. Yeah, he was. He was given unbelievable access to not just CIA files, but other Western intelligence service files. And he went through them and he cherry-picked bits of information, for example, that Golyanevsky had given, repackaged it, denounced Golyanevsky and said, but this, this, this I am telling you, I know this is true. And he managed the trick of, on, on the one hand, discrediting the original source of the information and claiming credit for the information itself. Right. That's incredible. Yeah. No, he was a, he was either a really deep agent or just a great manipulator. And, and Angleton did not have a great history. I mean, this started off this whole wilderness of mirrors, mole hunts, fights among people, claims that other people were the spies. So it created, I mean, I can go listen in part created this environment of total suspicion or total paranoia within the intelligence agencies. Is that correct? Absolutely. What Galitzin and Angleton did together tore apart the CIA and tore apart MI5 here in Britain and, as a result, devastated, hobbled, essentially crippled Western intelligence 
for a decade. Right. So, I mean, you can see this effect, like the Litson had it. And, uh, I mean, it's just an incredible history there of Golanowski in the front. And, and I mean, it's sad how he kind of ended up kind of betrayed by the government that he helped. And I think that that's kind of a, le a lesson or a cautionary tale about this story. Would you agree with that? I think it's absolutely true. Um, on that level, Golianevsky's story is, is a tragedy. He was an incredibly brave agent in place, spy for the West for three years. He was an incredibly valuable defector after he arrives in the West. And the list of Soviet bloc spies he exposed is without parallel. And then, as you say, he was abandoned, cast out by the CIA, and harassed, very badly harassed by them, to the point where they essentially drove him insane. Right. And that's a tragedy. The but is that he also played his own significant part in that tragedy. He bears a significant degree of responsibility for that himself. I mean, yeah, and it just, uh, it's just remarkable. Like, they kind of pulled the rug out from under him, left him financially alone. He had uh, illnesses in the family, and uh, next thing yeah, you know, I mean, they, you think, they, yeah. Reneged, they reneged on their contract. They stopped paying him. They left him high and dry financially at a time when he was – when his wife, Ermgard, was going through surgery, when she was about to give birth to their child, they took away the, um, the gun he had been given for protection at a time when Polish intelligence was looking for him to assassinate him. He'd been sentenced to death in absentia by a Polish military court for betraying Poland to the West. And it harassed him. It constantly changed his cover names. It threatened him. It obstructed congressional committees. It gave misleading evidence to the Senate committees. The CIA behaved utterly appallingly throughout all of this. But I have to come back to this and say we also have to recognize that Golyanevsky also contributed to his own downfall by, from, uh, from the middle of 1964 onwards, pronouncing himself quite falsely to be the son of the last Tsar of Russia and trying to claim a supposed imperial Russian fortune. Right, like he, like he played those cards, and uh, I don't think it helped him. And I've, the facts show that he, there wasn't anybody left over when they were shot, or in Ekaterinburg, or when the Romanovs were shot in Ekaterinburg. So, yeah, it's just very odd. And he, you know, he died completely uh, unknown to history as well, which is also really unfortunate. So he was never really lionized uh, publicly in the U.S., I think, which is really kind of a sad tale. Yeah, I mean, it, it is a tragedy. It's the tragedy of a brave but flawed man to whom the West owed an enormous debt who was 
grossly let down by the CIA and to some extent by British intelligence, but who's who was also who also betrayed himself with greed and paranoia, and in the end, I think largely as a result of what the CIA was doing to him, genuinely lost his mind. Lost his mind, yeah. Yeah, it's a shame. Um, where's the best place for people to obtain this book? Well, it's available all over. It, it's available in the UK in all bookstores. It's on Amazon. You can buy the UK edition from any Amazon worldwide. As I say, the US edition, which um, is being published by St. Martin's Press, comes out in December, and it'll be therefore available in bookstores in the US uh, and on Amazon US. That US edition will be available from December. Gotcha. And that's titled Sniper, right? Just, just Agent, Sniper? Agent. Agent Sniper. Agent Sniper. Great. Well, really a tremendous accomplishment. Really enjoyed reading this book, and it really read almost like a John le Carre you know, novel, but uh, real, really interesting stuff. Somebody from the chat is asking whether Children for the Devil is in print anymore. Have you, that's like your first, one of your first books? I've just seen the chat. It's from somebody called Amber Dubon. If um, Ms. Dubon wants to check on this, she can, it's, the details are on my website. Children for the Devil was sued. Um, my publisher was sued. I was sued um, by a police officer in the UK who claimed that four paragraphs in this book of 100,000 words might lead some people to the inference that he was corrupt. I don't think they held that inference, and we certainly didn't intend that. But it was a very difficult lawsuit to defend, and my publishers settled it out of court. One of the terms and conditions of that settlement is that I cannot distribute or allow to be distributed copies of Children for the Devil in any possible format. And that's why I have to say to people who try to do that, I can't let you do that. I see. So it's just out of publication permanently. Is that correct? Yeah. And um, I don't think there is a way to get this book back into publication in many ways, I'd like to because it's a, you know, it's a very serious and detailed investigation and the four paragraphs complained of have absolutely no relevance to the very difficult issue of ritual abuse. But because of that litigation and because I'm bound by what my publishers agreed, I can't get it back into print. Oh, that's unfortunate. I mean, those are important books. So few people, you know, write those books on Satanism and things like that. Often they just make one and that's in the, I've never read Children for the Devil, but I definitely want to read it. Um, let's see, what else? I mean, I, I, would, I would say that if it's in, for those who want to read it, and this is not me trying to get around any public, the publication uh, ban, it is in libraries. Oh, interesting. It's so it's around. Some libraries still have it. The British Library has it here. Um, I imagine the Library of Congress will has it, have it because they have most published books. Um, so you can find it. It's just I can't help people read it. Fascinating. That's a, a difficult position. What what led you to write that book? I mean, that's a really tough subject. 
Yeah, I'd made a film and written a book about um, investigating child pornography um, a couple of years earlier. And that had led me to the allegations of ritual abuse and satanic crime. And there were several very large cases, particularly in the UK at the time, that I researched for a film um, which I didn't produce and which I don't think was very good. But I said, this is too serious an issue and it's too fraught with polarised opinion to be left to one side shouting at the other. So I wanted a balanced examination basically which asks the question is we have these we have children making these allegations worldwide how how do we handle this what do we do how do you talk to a child as a law enforcement professional or as a ther therapist who is telling you things which are physically impossible you know you have to do something with that and sadly because the debate is so vicious and so polarized from both sides, we have not answered that question in, what is it now, 30 years? 30 years, right, yeah. You published that book in 1991. It's really incredible. Before its time, I mean, there's still issues here, whether McMartin, some of these other cases, what's really going on, I don't know. I don't know if McMartin was really ever resolved, at least not to my satisfaction. But uh, a lot of that information isn't really public anymore. The court files, I don't think, are public. But, uh, yeah, we've had our, I mean, you have, I don't know how focused on the UK your book is, but we have our own cases like that in the US for sure. Yeah, McMartin did feature in your oh, book as well. Gotcha. Well, thanks for the interview. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Your website, again, is timtate, all one word, .co.uk, correct? That's absolutely right. And people can read ex excerpts from all my books on that website with the exception of Children for the Devil, and they can read an explanation as to why they can't read it on that website. Gotcha. So go to the website. Again, the title of this book, just published May 2021, again, is The Spy Who Was Left Out in the Cold, The Secret History of Agent Golanovsky by Tim Tate. Tim Tate, thanks so much. Thank you very much. All right. Take care. Have a good day. All right. So this